Remember when the pandemic started more than a year and a half ago? Lockdowns, masks, fear of the unknown? A vaccine against COVID-19 was spare as those restrictions and paved the way back to normal, or as normal as we might see. But it hasn't. Now we have a divide between the vaccinated and the unvaccinated over mandatory vaccines and vaccine passports. Which side are you on? Hello and welcome to the Unpublished Cafe. I'm Ed Hand. We're coming to you from a remote location and practicing physical distancing to enhance safety. When put to the public in both cases, in polls, the majority of Canadians support mandatory vaccines and vaccine passports, but that doesn't seem to matter to those who oppose vaccines to the point of protesting in front of hospitals, the places that have been overwhelmed since the beginning of this pandemic. And I'll be honest, I have no idea why or sympathy for anyone protesting and interfering with access to a hospital. Our unpublished.vote question asks, do you support the use of mandatory vaccines and vaccine passports in Canada? Yes, no, or unsure. You can log on and vote right now at unpublished.vote and make your voice heard. Not only have we had to wrestle with the pandemic and the battle over the unvaccinated, it comes to the in, in the middle of a federal election campaign. Now, coming up on the Unpublished Cafe, we'll talk about the decision for some employers to, to make vaccines mandatory as a condition of employment. As well, will vaccine passports make indoor gatherings safer or just a hindrance? First, we're joined by Ray Watt, Dionandon, epidemiologist and associate professor at the University of Ottawa. And, and Ray, how much of the fourth wave is attributed to the Delta variant and the unvaccinated? Pretty much all of it. Back in March, I was predicting we would not have a fourth wave. I thought the summer would unfold a new dawn and life would get better every single day. I was wrong because of two things. I did not anticipate the virulence, the transmissibility of Delta and how quickly it would become dominant. And two, I did not think we would have such slow vaccine uptake. And frankly, if everyone were vaccinated, we would not be in this situation here. So epidemics are all about the size of a susceptible population. Who is susceptible? Those who are not immune. Who's not immune? Those who have not had and recovered from the disease and those who have not been vaccinated. And in Canada, that's still a very large proportion of our population. So that's what's driving this fourth wave, this inability of this last contingent of people to be immune. Now, you, you talk about susceptibility. Uh, now, do we not have people who are double vaxxed that are able to transmit that as well? Yes, but those people who are double vaxxed, A, are less likely to be infected, not perfectly, but less likely, mm -hmm. and B, much, much, much less likely to suffer serious disease. So they would not impact our healthcare system or our way of life appreciably. Now, remember, if you're double vaxxed and you get infected, A, you're much less likely to be a serious case, but you will carry a similar viral load to an unvaccinated person who is infected. So in that sense, you're just as infectious. However, for a shorter period of time, much shorter period of time. So the bottom line is an unvaccinated person is far less, sorry, rather a vaccinated person is far less likely to transmit the disease to other people. In your opinion, are there any legitimate reasons for not getting vaccinated? Sure. Um, if you're a child, first of all, you're not eligible. Um, there is a handful of people who are allergic to the vaccine con uh, components, and that's really, really a small number of people. So the exceptions have to be quite poor. Now, who are the vaccine resistant? They're a diverse group. 
we have to be aware of the fact that we can't uh, tarnish them all with the same brush. There is, there are, of course, the anti-vaxxers, who are the hardcore people who make most of the news, and they're actually a small proportion. Depending upon your study, maybe between 0.06 and 5% of the population are hardcore anti-vaxxers. To me, they're a kind of religion. I don't know really how to argue with people um, who are arguing for the position of faith. Then there are those who are vaccine hesitant. And for them, I have all the time in the world. They're just subject to some bad information they saw on Facebook or YouTube, some fear mongering, and they just need to be given a better science education and explain and walk through the data with a bit more care. Then there are those who are apathetic. The apathetic are technically younger. Um, they feel that their immune systems are hardy enough to uh, ward off any undue uh, effects of the disease and haven't been thinking about their role in the larger population burden of the disease. For them, what they need is a greater incentive to be vaccinated. That's the group that vaccine passports really works well on. And the last group that I can think of are those who want to get vaccinated, but they don't have the opportunity. Maybe they've got childcare demands or work demands. They're afraid of the side effects that would prevent them from giving childcare or, or can't get away from work to get vaccinated. For them, we have a, a series of other policy levers we should be exploring. They're the low-hanging fruit. So yeah, so uh, and that brings up the conversation of vaccine passports. As I mentioned, that's best applied for the apathetic group. You know, some provinces have been reticent to impose vaccine passports or mandatory vaccines, you know, favoring regular testing instead. And, and is regular testing comparable in terms of protecting the public when it comes to uh, COVID-19 or uh, the vaccine is the top? If we didn't have a vaccine, I would be 100% behind regular testing as our best tool to keep society open while we wait for a vaccine, because uh, regular testing doesn't make the problem go away, allows us to manage the problem. Now, if we're regularly testing everybody, that's an undue expense, and that's an enormous complication. And also, it is a lot more imperfect than vaccination. A lot more cases will fall through uh, the holes because rapid testing has a high false negative rate. So that's why we have to use it strategically. For that proportion of people who cannot be vaccinated or for whatever reason are still slow to get vaccinated as we attempt to cajole them into accepting vaccination, we should definitely deploy regular testing. But that's not a cure-all. The best alternative to vaccination is vaccination, not mm -hmm. testing. Now, you feel the wording about mandatory vaccines and passports isn't helping. Why is that? First of all, what do you mean by mandatory? We're not strapping people down and forcing them mm. to accept an injection of their arms. We're saying if you want to engage in these activities or keep this kind of job, then this is a requirement for your employment. If you feel that your right of bodily integrity supersedes your desire for this job, fine, get another job. Right. So that's that's what we meant mandatory. If you want to be a healthcare worker or an educator, get vaccinated. Otherwise, do something else. So uh, phrasing it in a different way is important there. Now, calling it a vaccine passport has rubbed some people the wrong way. Passport has an implication that I'm crossing a border. Security is going to look me up and down. I might get strip searched. I got to show my papers to some, you know, Gestapo, jackbooted kind of individual. It sends the wrong totalitarian kind of message. Whereas calling it something else like, uh, I don't know, a ticket, an entry uh, pass has a more positive sounding implication and also more accurately tells what it is. This is your ticket into the restaurant. This mm -hmm. is your pass into the theater. This is not something that prevents you from doing something. It's something that allows you to do something. You know, Britain canceled its vaccine passports to encourage more vaccinations. And to me, this seems a bit counterproductive. Yeah, I don't understand the logic there. Um, as we saw everywhere around the world, France, Manitoba, Quebec, anytime that vaccine passports were announced, 
vaccine uptake shot up instantly. In BC, I think it doubled the next day, the number of um, uh, bookings for, for shots. So it doesn't make a lot of sense to me. We have data from places like Israel. We use something called a green pass as our vaccine passport. And they show that it was a fine tool for um, encouraging uptake of vaccination and for keeping businesses open. And by the way, it did not lead to totalitarianism. And it fell by the wayside in a matter of weeks and months as cases fell. And that's the key part here. This is not the path to dictatorship. It will go away naturally after a period of months, not years. You know, many against these mandates call it an invasion of privacy. Does that hold water for you? To an extent. I see where they're coming from. But we have these invasions already in our society. Uh, we have limitations on how fast you can drive and who can drive and where you can cross the street and things like that. Because society has decided that in certain key aspects, we must limit your freedoms and your rights for the greater public good. We don't take that determination lightly. They've all been debated in the public forum. And vaccination is one of those things we do not take lightly. But we've decided that this is in the greater public good. And we've used this in the past. You, in Ontario, you can't go to school unless you've been accepted into nine different vaccination programs, right? You must have been vaccinated against nine diseases. In the military, I think 13 vaccinations are mandatory. This is just one more. No one has an outcry against those other situations. And I think the difference is the, the COVID vaccine has been uh, tainted in the eyes of the public by some powerful and vocal disinformation agents who have put forth these ridiculous conspiracy theories to make it look like these vaccines are untested and unsafe. They've been really rigorously tested. Their safety profiles are astonishingly good, astonishingly good. We're into uh, hundreds of millions of doses given around the world so far. No safety signals have been noticed yet after hundreds of millions of doses. I think it's safe to say that um, any fear of law, of, well, long-term effects are another issue we can talk about. Any fear of immediate issues of safety are unfounded. In terms of long-term issues, we've had these vaccines for almost two years now. They've been tested in the laboratory situation for months beyond that. Nothing bad has happened to any of these people yet. So um, there is a extremely low, close to zero probability that any surprises are lingering and waiting for us when it comes to vaccination ill effects. You know, we're in an election campaign. It's uh, drawing to a close on Monday, but vaccines and passports have been a wedge issue. Do you think that's part of the problem? Yeah, that's a huge part of the problem. Uh, part of the problem throughout the entire pandemic has been the weaponization of pandemic misinformation for the purposes of political gain. So pandemics have a way of prizing open cracks in a society along lines of socioeconomic status, race, politics, ideology, et cetera. And vaccination is no exception to this. So the disinformation agents have, again, prized apart those cracks for duplicitous purposes. And that's what we're seeing played out large on the election stage. It is unfortunate. This should be a bipartisan issue. On the plus side, the three major or well, four major uh, parties are all pro-vaccination. They just differ in the extent to which they want to anger a certain demographic um, by compelling greater vaccination for the public good. Ah, uh -huh, politics, politics. Ray, thanks so much <laughs> for joining us. Thank you very much. Ray Watt-Neonandon is an epidemiologist and associate professor at the University of Ottawa. Vaccine mandates, whether mandatory vaccine policies for the workplace or vaccine passports to participate in certain activities will have an impact on the labor market in Canada. Alison Braley retires, assistant professor at the of labor studies at Brock University, and she joins us now. And Alison, I find it interesting that Unifor is telling its members to get vaccinated to keep their jobs 
while PSAC, the largest public sector union, is not convinced. What does that tell you? Well, I mean, with regard to the labor movement and the various positions that different unions have taken on the question of uh, mandatory vaccination in their workplaces, I think we can put them sort of along a continuum. So on one hand, you have Unifor, which is saying, you know, we absolutely embrace this, um, get her done. Uh, if not, you face discipline, including termination, and that that's, that's what's going to happen. And then you have a, 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 sort of the polar opposite uh, with groups for instance, like the Toronto Police Service and uh, the local uh, 113 of ATU, which are saying, you know, we don't think you should have to provide any of this, you know, private information. We absolutely reject um, uh, what seems to be coming down the pike here. And in between those two extremes, if you will, we have groups like PSAC, which is saying, you know, we don't oppose the, the vaccination piece. We're not saying that our members shouldn't have to give you information, but we are saying that, you know, exemptions from this mandate should be broader uh, than perhaps the government uh, wants to impose on them. So, for instance, aside from people like who have medical exemptions, which of course would, you know, would be accommodated, uh, PSAC would like to see members who simply choose not to be vaccinated to also be accommodated, uh, for instance, by having their work reassigned or be, by being allowed to work remotely. So I think that, again, the continuum from you know, one position to another position to another position better captures the, the various positions that unions have taken on this issue. How do you see vaccine mandates impacting the workplace? You know, you know, we're going to be seeing workers heading back to the office soon. You know, not as much as was before, but we are going to be seeing it. And you're going to have some people who are going to be looking at others, going, "Are they vaccinated or not?" I don't think it's going to make for a very productive workplace. Well, I mean, if the employer has a vaccine mandate, whether because they have independently decided to do that or because they're uh, an organization that is captured by a government-imposed mandate, um, then that will make some kind of difference as well. So workers going into a workplace um, where they, you know, more or less can be assured that most of their colleagues, um, you know, except for those who have a legitimate exemption, that most of their colleagues are vaccinated, you know, will likely, you know, rest a little easier perhaps than in a workplace where there is no such guarantee and people really don't know one way or another or have mm -hmm basis to know one way or another whether or not their colleagues are vaccinated. Um, and I think it's in part for that reason that mandates are, are actually pretty important because they remove the impetus from individual employers and individual businesses from having to make that calculation about whether it's good for their particular business to, to impose a vaccine mandate or not. Uh, and given the high stakes here and the fact that this is really a public health issue, it really shouldn't be left to individual organization and individual employers to have to make that calculus. And if they make the calculus wrongly, then that has impacts for public health. And really, there are a whole bunch of reasons why uh, that shouldn't be in the hands of individuals at this time, given the, the clear public health threat that uh, COVID represents. You know, I, I was kind of curious. It seemed in, in this whole discussion about the, the rights of the employer just seemed to be, um, I don't know, at the back of the at back of the bus more than anything else. You know, the bottom line for an employer is they have to not only protect their employees, they have to protect the clients who, who would come in. And many of them may be adverse to shopping or whatever goes on in that business around them. It doesn't seem the employer's uh, rights are, are being paid attention to as much as you know, employees and et cetera? Well, I would 
think, in fact, if you want to talk about employers' rights, I think my previous comment actually does do a lot to uh, empower employers to the extent that removing the choice from yeah. them creates the, the even playing field that removes them from having to now make the calculus. Is this going to be good for me? What's the guy down the street doing? Um, what kind of liability might I face if I do it, if I don't do it? Uh, and so, in fact, I actually think that having something, you know, more broad and imposed from a higher level, again, given the high stakes that it's a public health issue, in fact, is the better thing to do from the employer perspective as well. Employers may or may not share that view that I just espoused, but I think, you know, objectively speaking, it's actually better for them if that's the case and they don't have to deal with something that they're not expert in. What do they know about, you know, I mean, we can't expect them to be experts in public health or immunology. Um, they don't have access to all that information. And it's quite unfair, I think, in some ways uh, to download that responsibility on them in any way. You know, obviously, health is a, a provincial jurisdiction and each province is, well, the ones that are participating, rolling out their uh, vaccine uh, mandates is, and, and uh, passports. You know, I wonder, could it impede the movement of workers between provinces? And I'm looking at, you know, companies that would have employees, say, before five different provinces and transfers back and forth. You know, if you've got two different uh, provincial legislations on, on dealing with this, that could have a big problem with movement between those provinces. Um, I hadn't actually turned my mind to that, but I suspect that if, for instance, you had a particular scheme in one province that was quite different with regard to a scheme in a different province, at least vis-a-vis -a, -vis a particular worker, um, you know, that they're compliant where they work, but then wouldn't be compliant somewhere else, um, that, that could have uh, implications. Um, I, I'm not entirely sure how one would deal with that other than, you know, it's the right thing just to get double vaxxed. And therefore, we again, remove that problem because the responsible thing to do in this public health crisis is in fact to get double vaxxed. So although you know different schemes might have different implications, at the end of the day, um, you know the responsible thing to do for all our sakes is in fact for people to get double vaxxed unless they have a legitimate exemption. A conscientious belief against the vaccine, that's one of the ideas being brought forward. Is that protected by law? Do we know? Conscientious uh, beliefs under the various human rights codes in the various jurisdictions does not protect um, where there is a conscientious belief uh, would be unlikely, let me put it that way, would be unlikely to protect the kinds of reasons that people adduce under the, the umbrella of conscientious belief. So for the most part, we're not, when we talk about conscience, we're not in fact talking about religious belief, which is a kind of conscientious belief, but is well protected in every jurisdiction. We're not talking about medical exemptions either. We're, we're really talking about people who object to it, but usually on the grounds that they don't trust the science um, or they, they don't believe that, you know, COVID is actually as bad as it's made out to be. Uh, and so although that gets caught under the umbrella of conscience in people's everyday parlance, everyday speech, uh, in terms of a matter of law, it would really amount to, uh, you know, a rejection of the public health consensus, and that itself would not be protected in law. And what about uh, privacy issues? Do you think privacy issues, yes. that, that gets brought up a lot? Is that something that you think is, is, is covered, or uh, it's a red herring? Um, I, I think it's covered, but it's a red herring to the extent that a lot of people who bring it up 
seem to think that it's an all or nothing thing. Like, because this is private health information, therefore there is no condition under which you can make me give this up to you. Uh, and if you do, it's coercive and illegal. Uh, that I think is not true. There is, of course, privacy legislation in different jurisdictions that captures different aspects of, of having to give up private information. Um, so I think employers and you know, government mandates and, and all that has to be very mindful of how they collect the information, what the purpose of, you know, how much information they're asking, uh, how they disclose it, to whom they disclose it. All those things are important considerations, but those are relatively easily met. I mean, you can you know, get narrow information for a very particular purpose and only keep it, you know, keep it protected well and not disseminate it to others. Um, and that's not the same thing as saying you can't actually ask for it and require people to give it to you at the risk of running afoul of, a, of an employer policy or a mandate. Allison, I want to thank you for joining us. Thank you very much. I liked it very much. Thank you. Allison Braley Ratai is Assistant Professor of Labor Studies at Brock University. Our unpublished.vote question asks, do you support the use of mandatory vaccines and vac vaccine passports in Canada? Yes, no, or unsure? You can log on and vote right now at unpublished.vote. I want to thank our guest today, Raywat Neonandan of the University of Ottawa and Allison Braley Ratai of Brock University. And I want to thank you for watching The Unpublished Cafe. Stay safe. I'm Ed Hand. <laughs>